The Comms Con Awards final entry deadline closes at midnight on Friday 25th. This is the last chance to get your entry in and take the opportunity to compete against the industry's best. Think you have what it takes? Ready to have your best work recognised? Get your entry in now. Head to www.mumbrella.com.au forward slash ComsCon Awards. Hello and welcome back to the Mumbrella cast. I'm your host, Calm Jaspin, and joining me on the panel today is Mumbrella senior reporter, Emma Shepard. Hello. And Spinach general manager and media director, Ben Willey. G'day. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you very much for joining us, Ben. Later on, I will be joined by Kirsty Muddle, new creative group CEO at Dentsu, just a week after she got her feet behind the desk. During our conversation, Kirsty speaks about what attracted her to Dentsu, the uniqueness of starting fresh alongside a number of other new executive hires, and the ongoing developments in the group's proposition. We also have an interview with Ken Cato, one of Australia's most iconic designers. Ken and Cato Brand Partners are responsible for some of Australia's most recognisable brand logos, including Qantas, Combank, Australia Post, and the Australian Made sign, to name a few. But first, we're talking financials. Emma, which companies does that include? We're going to discuss Seven West Media's financials, which were delivered last week, as well as HTE ARNs, uh, before looking ahead to a couple of points on Nine's results, uh, which will be released tomorrow. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen financials for Australia's listed media companies, including Seven West Media, Domain, HTE, Enero, O Media, and more. But uh, unfortunately, we don't have time to chat through them all. But uh, Ben, lots of numbers to digest. A good place to start might be, instead of me listing them all, um, what are some of the real standouts for you so far and why is this period so important? Oh, well, thanks for that question. I think this period is really important because um, I know some of the listeners out there will be thinking, oh, boring financials. But in fact, it's really important now because uh, what happens um, in the stock markets and the expensive suits in Sydney and Melbourne is um, all of that money decides how much room to move CEOs of media companies have and the kind of media companies that um, are attracting more eyeballs and the formats that are attracting more eyeballs. So it has an enormous trickle-down effect to the whole industry, um, depending on what we watch and listen to and where our ads are seen and heard. So for me, um, as a media person, I think it's really important, if you want to be on the top of your game, to understand how the financial markets think about media companies, how they price them and what they think is good, bad and indifferent. Yeah, I guess one one of the uh, the big ones in terms of market capitalization, Seven West Media, was last week, uh, which we didn't talk about last week, saving that for this one. There are, I guess, a few points that have come out of that. On Unmade, Tim was talking with James Warburton about that potential M&A opportunity that he was pursuing for the last couple of years sort of coming to an end. There are opportunities now for Seven in the market in the in that kind of streaming game. There are a few that have been tossed around. I know there's a potential look at a deal with Foxtel. Do you see any real opportunities for Seven to kind of grow into here? Oh, look, I think there are enormous opportunities. And the, there are two key metrics that the financial markets look at. Um, one is market capitalisation, which is the total value of all of the company's shares, of, um, shares and stocks. 
And then there's price to earnings ratio. And price to earnings is the share price divided by the earnings per share, sometimes referred to as a multiple. So if you take a company like Seven West Media, its market capitalisation is about $986 million. Um, and if you compare that to one of their rivals, Nine Entertainment, it, their market capitalisation is about $4.5 billion. So um, very big difference in the size of those companies. The other thing that's a significant difference is the price-to-earnings ratio. Seven West price-to-earnings is running at about 5.4 times compared to Nine Entertainment, which is running at almost uh, three times, which is 14.8. And what that means is, is the market, uh, the price-to-earnings ratio is much higher for Nine Entertainment. So the market likes it more as a business. And the, probably the biggest reason why they like it more as a business is that not only does it have assets to more mediums beyond TV, they've got um, Stan, the streaming service, and they've also got their, um, their print business and their online news business. Um, so really, I think what the market's saying to Seven is, is you're potentially a bit small um, and we need you to have, um, we need you to be a bigger business. Um, and that's interesting in its own <laughs> right, because if you've got a streaming service, um, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. Um, probably by the time this pod comes out, Nine will have released their numbers. And, um, you know, last last year they got in a bit of trouble because the market perceived that they invested too much in streaming. So you've got to have a streaming business to be perceived as big and a valuable business. But if you invest too much in it, it seems to weaken your, your cash flow. Um, so there's a lot of layers to this, not to mention all of the global pressures. And how does a business like Stan in little old Australia compete with the Netflixes and the Amazons of the world? Yeah, and of course, now we've also got something like a Paramount Plus, which is really trying to stake their claim in the Australian market, obviously uh, owned offshore now. You mentioned Stan there, Ben. Uh, they appointed a new CEO this week. Emma, you will be speaking to Sneezeby uh, from Nine after their results are released tomorrow. Any hints on what you might be focusing on and was there a sort of reason why it took so long for Sneezeby's successor at Stan to be appointed? Well, that is definitely one of the questions I'm going to be asking, uh, why it did take so long for Martin to be you know, appointed CEO I, th I believe he was acting CEO for an entire year. I feel like Stan for the network is the future growth story that the stock market has really approved of in the last couple of years. So just how much more revenue will they put into that and invest into, you know, that platform this year? Uh, is it going to be worth it? Uh, and also a big reason that the market obviously likes Nine better than rival Seven West Media, to your point before, Cal, is that Seven is still kind of on the hunt for an SVOD offering. So that will be really interesting to, to kind of follow that this year. Also, Nine is likely to face a bidding war uh, this year with Seven for broadcast rights for the Australian Open Tennis Tournament from 2025 onwards. So I definitely want to get an update from, uh, from him on what's going on there. Ben, another one that's set to be released tomorrow is Southern Cross Asterio. I spoke to Dave Cameron last week. Um, there was an article on Mumbrella that you can go and read on the website um, about the the listener platform and I guess that how much that is going to play into Southern Cross Asterio's business model moving forward. How do you see that kind of, I guess, crossing wires with something like a Spotify uh, in the Australian market 
in terms of do you think we'll start seeing Spotify investing in local talent or and is there real value in still pursuing these sort of proprietary apps such as Listener? Oh, look, I think uh, I think apps like Listener are essential for businesses like Southern Cross. Um, you know, they have access to a huge amount, a significant audience, especially in their uh, radio business, and they have a really deep connection with that audience. And, um, you know, a big part of that is the talent and the people they invite into our bedrooms and into our bathrooms. And, you know, people have a really deep connection with radio. So it's a natural extension for them to develop these platforms. The other thing is that it gives them the opportunity to expand on addressability. And that's what advertisers want. Obviously, at the top of the funnel, we want really high reach. And in the mid and the bottom of the funnel, we want addressability. We want to know who we're talking to and we want to know the value of them. So the more data these businesses can collect about their users and about what they listen to, um, as the addressability in digital audio unfolds, um, that'll make our job much easier um, and much more efficient because we'll be able to choose which streams we bid for and which streams we put ads in. And the IAB uh, recently reported that um, most agencies are going to be experimenting with um, programmatic audio in the next 12 months. I know we've been doing it for some time for our clients and there's a long way to go in this space. Um, it's still not perhaps as um, efficient as programmatic for other mediums, but watch this space. Um, you know, addressability is really important and um, being able to speak to the right people in a medium that can be really powerful like audio is a really important um, feather to their cap. And um, you spoke with HTE boss Kieran Davis this morning just before we came on the recording. Uh, the Australian media company delivered its half-year financials this morning. Any interesting points that came up there? Yes, definitely. There was uh, a, a few good points. Um, off the back of podcasting audience share and downloads increasing uh, quite significantly, especially in the last two years, and I believe downloads are up were up 30% last year. Davis told me through the iHeart radio app, they're able to see that people are engaging with live radio and podcasts at different times. Uh, so he said podcast growth won't be impacting their live radio growth, which means, you know, the introduction of podcasting won't basically affect live radio audience share, which is something that I, I did think could potentially happen. He said they'll be cross-promoting between the two. So when one is getting a high level of traffic, they'll promote on that and vice versa. Uh, this will be the same for advertising and they'll be creating new revenue opportunities off this strategy. Uh, a quick update he gave me on the sale of 4KQ, which has been ongoing since January. Uh, he's seen a lot of buyer's interest, but not expecting a sale, he said, by mid-October this year. Uh, and then he also said he's seen a significant increase in radio advertising in the tourism, travel and events categories with the easing of COVID restrictions, borders opening up and supply chain issues coming to an end. So the network is making sure they really drive that this year. Uh, he also said that the integration of air and regional is going to be a big part of the company's growth this year too. And just finally, I know it was something we were talking about uh, off air, um, the sports streaming category is something that we have previously touched on. Emma, you sort of um, previewed a bit there. We were talking about Stan. I was watching uh, the Champions League football and Stan Sport this morning. There's certainly too many for me to subscribe to them all. Ben, how do you sort of see this area growing in the coming year? 
Oh, look, I think it's an enormous risk to uh, Australian media companies. The cashed-up bogans um, of the streaming, global streaming services have come to town. They've built a big house. It's got some horrible white columns out the front, and they are buying everything they can get their hands on. Um, now, live sport is an enormous part of um, broadcasting in Australia, and, um, you know, if we were to see that, if we were to see streaming services come on board, uh, they might bid up those rights prices to what is beyond ridiculously eye-watering numbers. So certainly an enormous risk in that space and something that um, Australian broadcasters would be very, very nervous about. Coming up next, brand design icon Ken Cato. Ken Cato, Australian designer and presence for more than 50 years. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's nice to be here. So you're responsible for some of Australia's most iconic branding, including Qantas, Combank, Australia Post, Macquarie Bank, to name a few. It might seem like an obvious one to start with, but what is the, the sort of starting point or process in creating brand design that can stand the test of time? I think it all comes down to listening hard uh, and, and understanding what the business is about and not thinking short term, but thinking bigger picture. Um, I think it's, it, it really is trying to, trying to understand what the business strategy is. And it sounds a bit trite, but, you know, what we do largely is make the business strategy visible. And, and everyone's got an opinion about what they think it's about, but it really is often digging deep and it's often understanding the history because we see, you know, rejuvenated brands occurring on a pretty regular basis, but none of that's ever start again. It all comes out of the history. And generally, what we, I guess what we've found over the years is um, the founders normally had a pretty right that they knew what they were doing at the beginning. And while conditions around that may have changed, the essence of the company is normally fairly pure. And it gets lost in reinterpretations and reactions to marketplace and things like that. But, you know, I guess it's being genuine. It's being, what, what, did, what was the saying? There was a, um, something like remember to be yourself, everybody else is taken. Um, where the companies are not trying to be something and not trying to fit into the profession or the industry that they're in, but rather trying to be themselves and actually to stand out and to have genuine difference. And it's, it's going looking for that essence and it's going to find the visual cues that reflect those things. You're, you're a big, I guess, you're a big advocate of Australian businesses kind of finding their own voice through their branding. Do you think that is something which has particularly lacked in the past and maybe something that needs to kind of be honed in on right now? Uh, look, I, I'm proudly Australian uh, and no one should ever get that wrong. But I don't, I try not to think in, uh, you know, an Australian environment particularly but rather try to put it in a global context because I think the way businesses work today, we know the internet, you can, you can shop anywhere, you can be in contact with anybody. You know, it, it's not 
while there are specific things around individual marketplaces, the opportunity is far greater than that. And I think it's, um, it's really about acknowledging that and understanding. The, 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 the worst thing that happens is we, we encounter businesses that say they really want to be standing out and they want to be different and they want to express that. But often that's very much tempered by, I want to fit in. I want to be part of this industry. And there seems to be a kind of an insecurity about truly stepping out there. I, I had a uh, we, we launched an airline in Mexico yesterday, and I, I got a lovely email from the from the CEO. But the bottom line of it was beautiful, and he just said, "Thank you for helping us to be ourselves." And to me, that's incredibly rewarding because we we threw challenges out to them, and and, and through a process of collaboration, we, we got to the essence of what they wanted to do, but it was a little bit scary. It was not going to necessarily just fit into the marketplace. Yeah. And I think having the courage to do that. Look, there are plenty of good Australian brands that, that do be true to themselves, but there's a lot that just try to fit in. And that, and that's the hardest way to do business. We know that you know being recognised, being individual enough that you stand out amongst the competitors and have something to say. That essential in today's business. Do you, Do you ever find that when you are working with the client, there is conflict in that in that regard where you are, you know, you're presenting an idea for them, which really does sort of take that step and stand out. And is there ever any kind of pushback or uh, I know you mentioned off air to me that clients do kind of come to you knowing what, knowing what to expect when they, I guess, go to uh, your, your company. Look, I think, you know, again, it's, it's an honesty thing. I mean, I, I don't look to be a, what would you say, a supplier. I'm looking for the partnerships. Um, the, the best work that we've done over 50 years has absolutely come out of relationships that have been formed through business where the CEO will gain confidence, the board will gain confidence, the marketing people will gain confidence and go, all right, we trust the conversation. And... It's not about trying to sell the client something at all. It's about finding an honest way of understanding what's there and then making that come to life in a way that, that's noticeable. And I know just before you mentioned the, the airline in Mexico that, that you launched yesterday, are there any other recent projects that you've worked on that sort of exemplify the changing nature in in the branding market or do you think it's one of those things that will sort of um, forever stay the same? We, we, we've just had a wonderful experience with a, uh, the largest retailer in the Arab Emirates and um, they're in seven countries, 3,000 staff, you know, in stores. Um, the incredible thing about them was the moment they, believe it or not, over a glass of wine, which I'm prone to, um, <laughs> someone mentioned the way they, they stocked and bought their product. 
And they said that, you know, even though they had best-selling product, they weren't ever going to repeat it, that it was in store. When it, when it was done, it was done, and then there would always be something new. Now, despite all the in-depth strategy meetings and discussions and everything else, that one moment clarified where the identity would go. And we knew that they were in an, in an industry that was in a state of constant change and that the identity had to ref, had to respond to that opportunity and in a sense it was always expect our identity to be to be changing there'll be something every time you see it it'll be different yeah and developing a program that would allow that to happen was incredibly exciting and challenging for them but the result uh, that, that was launched in December, uh, uh, as I say, after a good year's work, um, but really rewarding and shaken up the industry for sure, absolutely. Do you think there's a certain, I guess, period of time which uh, I guess deems it appropriate to be rebranding or kind of um, developing your brand or is it sort of a case-by-case instance just based on the product and the, the position in the market? Look, it's a really interesting question. Um, I think all companies and all brands are generally always changing. Now, that doesn't mean they're out there redesigning their trademarks and things like that. But there's always something happening that is, that's influencing the, the brand in some way. And it might be a change in the marketplace. It might be new technology. It might be a shift in the customer base. It, I mean, I think I've got a list of about 25 or 30 reasons why brands may actually address what they're doing now. We, back in a... 1989, God, most people probably watching this weren't born then, but we'll go past that. <laughs> um, we were working on a project in Japan that, that changed our thinking radically. Um, we realised that while the, the expectation was redesign the trademark and do all those things that people think, you know, brand seems to be about, we realised that to find the ideal solution, that that was never really going to work. It didn't matter what we did with the trademark, that was never really going to solve the problem for the brand. And there's a significant difference between what everybody interprets as brand and what they interpret as a trademark. But in this particular instance, we, we developed a secondary language that allowed the company to have a much broader voice that allowed the company to <clears throat> just go about expressing messages and and uh, creating a presence for itself that had nothing to do directly with the trademark. And I, and I often talk about building brands and building identity is a bit like putting a book together. You don't start by designing the front cover. Yeah, You might, you might just go write the chapters and that the chapters within the business will be about individual departments, they'll be about products, they'll be about allied businesses, they'll be about all sorts of things. And understanding the brand mechanisms that they need to do their job better, for me, is a critical starting point. If if we understand those things, ultimately we can summarise that in the trademark. 
you know, we'll bring the identity together. But the kit of tools for brand goes way beyond the trademark. Yeah. And today we're dealing in different dimensions. We, we've got time on our side. We've got the internet, which allows us a, a longer period to communicate in. We can animate. We can, The sonic brands have become a major part of how we think about things. There's... There's so many dimensions to brand today that weren't necessarily easily available before. And and I think, you know, think the world has changed radically. And I guess that is a, is a good segue in, into just finally, Ken, you mentioned uh, building a book there. You've got a new book yourself coming out, Recognize Me, sort of based on uh, everyone's search to, to really be noticed through branding in, in this expanded world. If you could... Just quickly, I guess, you know, we want to make sure people go out and buy the book, but <laughs> talk us through the sort of idea behind that and uh, I guess your thinking. Um, the nicest thing about the book is that it's no longer on my desk. Um, <laughs> the, the book started off being a bit of a, I don't sure what it was, it was a bit of a how-to book and then I thought that's a bit arrogant, we don't need that. Um it's more about learnings over the 50 years. I mean, I always look at the matrix of what, what I, I've been lucky enough to live in my life and what we've got is 52 years of this company, 112 countries, 113 countries I think it is now, pretty much every different conceivable in, um, industry. And what we learn out of that, the constant learning out of these different dimensions, um, sometimes finds commonality and sometimes it doesn't. And, and, and what I found as I was putting the book together was that there were real insights that were um, only something you can gain by experience and that I think that it would be a benefit to other designers and communicators, but also to industry. I, I, I think business could learn a lot from this because it's everybody else's problems and everybody else's solutions, if you like. There's some 20-odd chapters and 2,300-odd oh, two, images in the book. It's a pretty hefty volume. Um, yeah. And, I'm, you know, it's one of those things that you, you don't have to read front to back, that you could dive anywhere into the book and, and find a little gem that actually helps you solve a problem. And, and I, I was amazed at just, I mean, the volume of work we've done over the last 52 years. Hopefully the next 52 years will, will be equally as productive. I'm looking forward to... Uh to seeing what you've got over the next 52 years, Ken. Me too. Uh, and looking forward to seeing the book. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. It's, it's more than a pleasure. Coming up next, I'll be chatting to Densu Creative Group CEO, Kirsty Muddle. Kirsty Muddle, new CEO of Densu Creative Group. Welcome to the podcast today. Thanks very much, Callum. It's good to be here. So you are very fresh to the role, taking it up just last week. Uh, I guess a good place to start would be taking me through your initial impressions of being in a part of Dentsu. So, good question. It is um, 
let's say I've had three days on the ground, <laughs> but but that's often the freshest perspective, right? So my um, my initial um, uh, impression has been, as I suspected, Dentsu is a really interesting business. So they've got a history of acquiring some of the most successful indie brands in this country and in the world, arguably, and then they've got this scale of a global network and that intersection between both feels, it actually feels really familiar to me, so that entrepreneurial indie side feels really familiar to me and then what fascinates me is how you take that entrepreneurial spirit and then the agility that comes with that um, and you scale it with this deep capability that they have across the group. So every time I have a one-on-one with someone or I, or I um, find myself on a call, I sit there going, wow, this, this person knows something that is genuinely really interesting. If I take that and I stick that over there with that other very interesting person, that's, that's dynamite. That's, that excites yeah. me. So I would say all in all, it feels really familiar. I'm totally fascinated and then I just feel this surge of energy of what can be done with all of this yeah. stuff that's sitting inside of Dentsu at the moment. I guess that's a, a pretty good transition for you then. I was going to ask, you know, yeah. uh, a second part to that being an independent for the last 10 or 11 years, it must kind mm. of help that adjustment a little bit. You sort of mentioned there about the energy and all the pieces in Dentsu. Um what was it that really interested you in this new role? I know uh, you you had just been appointed CEO at Cummins and Partners, but then moving across into this kind of group role. If you could just talk me through what it was that really kind of brought you in there. Um, I think I was ready for a new adventure. So we had started the business 11 years ago. Um, and I was 29 at the time, so had been through the peaks and the troughs. You know, I think we had some huge successes, worked with some of the best in the business, and then I just felt that it was time to, you know, move on to a new chapter. I wasn't looking, you know, Dentsu presented presented itself and for the same reasons I just mentioned, were well, all of that, you know, they got my heart racing. And then once I started to unpick what the possibilities were, the were there, that, that really connected with my um, head. Angela in Tangus, terms of, who is the wow, group what could CEO, this be? what can we do with that? Dentsu here and, in, and, in and Australia? When I met her, I genuinely felt this connection. She's a humble, she's very, very humble she's business savvy and she has this different drive about her that I equally found really fascinating. So I look through like typical indie, I look through the lens of could I start a business with that person, even if it's a holding company. <laughs> and I felt I was, I was talking to her, listening to her going, I could start a business with that person. And it, yeah. it, that energy made me, you know, I found really very compelling. Angela is um, 
getting quietly getting a bit of recognition for the appointments that she's been making in the last, I guess, few months, including yourself. Recently, mm. uh, there was Chris Bauer appointed into the new role of CEO in Australia, New Zealand of Dentsu Solutions. David Holter joining from what is now CHEP um, mm-hmm. as Chief Strategy Officer. How do you think the the network goes from, I guess, being commended for appointments to then translating that into, I guess, uh, into positive business activity or wins? That's a very good question. Um, there's also John Riccio, who is the CEO of the yep. CXM business too. So he, we're all joining at the same time. I think that there is an underlying commitment that we want we want to work together. And we want we want to find solutions that are slightly that pull on all of our um, specialist and our expertise. So, it, I mean, it, it, we're all starting at the same time. We're all starting from the same point of view. I think that that's a massive massive driver. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. No. the 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 other thing to add on that is. Just going back to Ange for a moment, um, you know, I, I I think she had a recipe in mind. And so when she was interviewing talent, um, selecting good humans to bring into the business, she was she had that recipe in mind. So I think she was sort of organically testing whether or not we would complement each other and work well together. And I guess it is a really interesting time to be, I guess, bringing in all these kind of senior figures at, at the same time, as you mentioned there, um, sort of cooking up a recipe. Now with, um, now with you know, the, the industry hopefully uh, out of sight from COVID, well, not out of sight, but cautiously moving forward. Do you think this kind of sets Dentsu up uh, as a traditional sort of network as being agile in order to move forward beyond COVID and kind of have that plan in place? I definitely think, you know, I definitely think we're taking Dentsu into some white space, so some clear space, because we've got, we're kind of at both ends of the, you know, if there was a spectrum, let's just call it a spectrum for the moment, but you've (laughs) got the consultancies all the way up one end, quite pure consultancies, and then you've got agencies of all kinds down this end. And when you look at people like John Riccio and Chris Bauer, as an example, that we've just spoken about, and you've got myself and David Holter and some of the existing, you know, highly successful Sue um, who runs our media business and you've got us in the business, we're kind of pulling Dentsu into this middle space that is clear space. No one's operating yeah. in that space in the same way that we intend to. Um, So we probably have this ability to do, you know, there's a bit of uncharted territory here, but we're all experienced enough to to know, um, have a good sense of where we're going. Um, And we probably can start to create the never before, (laughs) the never before in the impact that we have yeah. for our clients and ever before on the um, the style of work that we do, the style of solutions we present. So I think that's, you know, that's where we're kind of 
moving to. That's the opportunity anyway. Yeah, and I guess with uh, with that kind of in that space in between maybe the tr- more traditional model and the, the consultancies, do you think part of that might include maybe moving towards a, a sort of more centralized offering? I know in previous years, Dentsu has sort of brought a few of its um, brands together with mm-hmm. Isobar uh, go- coming into BWM. Um, I know Dentsu has globally quite a few of those kind of brands that it is kind of streamlining. Do you think mm. now with your position, not just being agency uh, CEO, but being Dentsu Creative CEO, Mm-mm. it might be moving in that direction? I mean, I think that we definitely want to be more connected in what we do, so less silos, and that's that's certainly yeah. an area that we want to pursue, um, which it makes sense that you now have fewer have to use this word, I'm so sorry, but verticals. (laughs) (laughs) You've got the creative and everything that we, we, you know, have in that from brand to creative technologists to to social change to, you know, PR, um, consumer PR, et cetera. Um, And then you have media. I think that the fact that we've simplified the structure will help bring everyone together. Um, Yeah in more simple in a more simple way and i guess uh over the past couple of months before you you then as we mentioned at the top of the show um actually got behind the desk did you have any time to think about the the sort of direction or plans that you personally would like to take what what falls under your creative remit and maybe a couple of years on the uh, along the line what you might think it might look like it's a very good question and that's all to be revealed. <laughs> um, you know that's not what we want to hear. <laughs> no, I know that's not what you want to hear. But 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 um, look, it it that we will reveal that. I think um, uh, there all the businesses, um, you know, BWM, Isobar, um Coxall Inn or Ridgeway, you know, the existing businesses are doing amazing work. They are. So so the vision is to continue that success um, and then, you know, see what else we can do with it. Yeah. And is there any, I guess, since you've, you've started, I imagine you'd be having a lot of these sort of introductory conversations, kind of a stock take of where things are, how things are going. Is there any sort of assessment of how um, that 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 merger with Isobi is going so far, you know the internal reflections. I know some of the capabilities were split up uh, between Isobi going to BWM and then some of the stuff into Merkel. Um, you probably know more than me. What you're just talking about? No, <laughs> I'm joking. I'm totally joking. You often do. You often do know more than all of No, I mean, from my sense of this is that it's it's going well. I had a I had a one on one chat with a, um, a strategist that was ex Isobar in its singular form and is now with us. Mm-hmm. And I think that her 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 um, you know it's not about the brand; it's about your capability and where we point that capability defined by the client need. So, you know, she felt very comfortable in her role and she's doing great work. So in my mind that means that it's all working um, and it, and people are in, you know, 
still enjoying what they're doing. So that would be the yeah. ultimate signifier. Yeah. And I guess just staying on that there now with Paul Williams having fully left the business and Rob Belgiovanni having also left the business previously, Jamie Mackay, I believe, is staying on as a consultant. Is there any sort of plans as to what the legacy of BWM will be at the agency, that being obviously an agency which has been in this market for a while? How, in what kind of sense will that heritage live on through the agency? Forever. I think all three of those, you know, BWM will forever be one of the greatest independent agencies that came out of Australia um, and, their, and their work will be, you know, in the history books that people reflect on going, that, that's fantastic work because they, they, that it really truly was. Um, and, you know, part of my role is I want to maintain the culture and the entrepreneurial spirit that they've embedded in the business that I've just walked into um, and that's really important to me. Uh, there, there has been, I guess, industry chatter about um, Dentsu making that global brand of McGarry Bound the central creative name in this market. I, I, it'd be interesting to is, have there been any conversations about that or any plans in that regard? Not that I am aware of, but Dentsu McGarry Bowen is in the Australian market and it is a, it's a, it is a burgeoning business for us. Um, so it is successful, but as is the BWM Isobra brand. A good, I, I, I guess a point that came up a lot last year was, and something that we'll be looking forward to this year will be the borders obviously reopening this week and a lot of that, that senior talent coming back through. Um, from your former agency, Cummins and Partners, there are quite a few names in the market right now that have come through that agency, including yourself. Is there anything about, I guess, the the sort of setup of that agency which has produced a lot of these talents or maybe been a, a spot for people to stop through at? Um, I mean, I think that the Australian advertising landscape generates great talent. Generally, yeah. it does, as does New Zealand. Um, and so there's a lot of great agencies out there that have have generated, um, grown, um, inspired great young talent in this, in this market that have gone to, out to be global leaders. Um, and that's one of the things that I'm very proud of for the industry, our industry in this market. You look yeah, at Brent Smart, uh... he came back. he went overseas he was running you know I I believe he was the I think he was the CEO in New York of two big global agency brands Um, you know and 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 probably some of that success came from the breeding and the experiences that he had in this industry here in Australia yeah I guess a, a big question will be you know we hopefully we will have that that attractive prospect of bringing people in here, but also, I guess, uh, keeping some of the talent within our borders, uh, and I, I guess being being closed in for the last year hopefully doesn't seem like too attractive a prospect to to go off and explore those uh, those opportunities. Callum, I think you just had a really good campaign idea <laughs> to the world. <laughs> Come and build. Maybe I'm on the wrong here. side. Yeah, <laughs> someone hasn't done that yet. <laughs> Oh dear. Well, 
Kirsty, it's been really great uh, having you on the podcast today, and I um, want to wish you all the all the luck with uh, your new role. Thank you very much, Callum. Thank you. And that's it for this week. Please make sure to subscribe to the Umbrella Cast on whatever podcast platform you're listening on, and check out the website for more content and updates. Ben, Emma, thank you very much for joining me. Thank thanks you for having me. And thanks to Kirsty and thanks to Ken as well. We'll see you next week. Thank you.